Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So uh, I'm I'm thrilled with the guests that we have today. I think that uh, we're going to learn a lot about strategy, a lot about building and scaling companies. And without further ado, I want to welcome our guest today, Ray Granger. Welcome to the show today. My pleasure, Alejandro. Great to be with you. So, how was uh, life growing up in in Southern California, Ray? Well, I, I enjoyed it. Again, I was I'm a native. I was born and raised here. Uh, and though I've uh, traveled and, and lived in a lot of places as a, a consultant with Accenture, I've always called Southern California home. It's hard so to beat what, the weather. And and what I, I mean, the weather there is is unbelievable. And by the way, Orange County, I love it because it's it's also very residential, so really great for raising families. Is that right? It was, yeah. No, my kids uh, were were also born and raised here. They've since moved on, but uh, it was just a great place to to raise a family. That's fantastic. So what got you into science and, and engineering? You know, I in high school, I'd always been interested in science, uh, math, um, you know, biology, and, and courses like that. Uh, when I was, uh, right, in fact, right after graduating from, from high school, I had such an interest in it. I went to work for the National Science Foundation, was on two expeditions to the South Pole. Uh, this was about uh, 40 years ago and spent uh, nearly a year there. Um, so just had a, a high affinity for for science, and then uh, when I went to college, uh, stayed in that and studied science and engineering. And 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 then why why what got you into into um, consulting? Why did you decide to to do your career? I mean, that's you did like almost I think it was like seventeen years or something. Like that. So so what got you into? Yeah, consulting? you know, it was interesting when I was in in college. Um, I worked on uh, some in, industrial projects for. Um, a, a company in the healthcare industry, uh, medical device industry. And what I really enjoyed about that was the business aspect of bringing products to market, solving business problems, and applying technology in that process. And so when I was in the interviewing process uh, in college, um, it just seemed like consulting specifically, I did you know technology consulting, information technology consulting to be specific. Um, and uh, it just seemed like a blend of, of both of my interests and seemed like a natural. Uh, I also liked the, the, the um, fact that I could learn so much about different businesses, business processes, different technologies, uh, and build a career around that. It just sounded appealing. Well, one of the things that I see, at least from, um, 
from from interviewing people and then from from getting to know founders is that some of the most successful have come from from consulting firms. So so why would you say this is the case? What what kind of background or or experience do you get to to prepare you so well for the world of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think well, there's two things. One is you know preparing for the world of entrepreneurship, but I think first and foremost by joining a consulting firm is the range of industries that you're exposed to. Uh, the business problems faced by different companies, and then the specific projects that you get to work on at a very fast pace. And once one is done, you're on to the next one. And so over a very short period of time, you, you accumulate a breadth of knowledge and a depth of, of technology understanding quite quickly. And uh, I think more so than you might do if you went straight into industry and uh, worked for one or two companies for a longer period of time going into the consulting industry just gives you a broader range of experiences in a, in a and, fast time period and i'm sure that for example like being 17 years like you were at accenture where where you ended up becoming global managing partner which is a very impressive you for example were able to identify certain patterns right on on certain companies that worked that had outstanding management and, and leadership teams and and some companies that didn't work so well. So, so what were some of those patterns? You know, I'll tell you the um, the one big takeaway for me is um, uh, the leadership trends that I observed in the clients that I consulted to, and how they managed teams, in particular how they hired leadership teams and and other personnel in their business. It really was around team formation and leadership and being exposed to different industries, specifically in the technology industry, which is where I spent a good portion of my time, uh, allowed me to have, I think, enough breadth of knowledge to, uh, to venture out and do my, do my own business. And we'll, and we'll get to that in, in just a bit. Why did you decide to, uh, to make a switch and, and join Inquira in 2005? You know, really, I had had the idea for, uh, for Mavenlink, the business that uh, we're, we're growing today, uh, for some time, it was born out of my consulting experience at Accenture, specifically consulting into the high-tech industry. And I had observed um, a, a, a gap in, in techno the technology needs of, of service providers. And having come from a service provider, I understood the domain very well and then, of course, saw the gap in technology. And so I had formulated the idea for Mavenlink. And while I had consulted to a lot of software companies, I had never been an operating executive in one, and I wanted to go build my own company. And so I transitioned from Accenture to Inquira and became an operating executive there to learn a whole bunch of things firsthand uh, by being on the inside, so to speak. Uh, uh, but it was all in preparation of being able to start my own software company. That's really amazing. Like very strategic for sure. And in many instances, I hear that Whenever you make a switch in your professional career, it, it doesn't need to be viewed as the end goal. It needs to be viewed as the bridge that is going to get you to the next chapter in your in your professional career. So I'm I'm really glad that that you are touching on this. So so what were some of the key lessons that you that you learned here? You know, when I went to Inquira, I had known about the company. Um, Inquira was an Accenture Technologies uh, Ventures investment, and I was part of the the team that helped make that investment into Inquire. And so I knew about the company, and so it was a natural for me to consider joining them when I left the firm. So I knew about their business and knew that they were uh, starting to achieve some growth trajectory, that it made sense for me to be able to go in and, and help them. And a couple of things that I 
I'll say lacked, uh, that I, I knew I needed to learn was, you know, really how to operate a, a, a product engineering function, um, how to organize the company for success, things like where should product management reside? Should it be in marketing? Should it be tied with engineering? Um, those kinds of things. Um, how to successfully go from a uh, an SMB go-to-market business to an enterprise business? What are the, the, the transitions that a company needs to make in order to move to new markets? All of those things were things I sought to learn when I went to Inquira. So then, so then walk us through, through the uh, incubation process of, of you really leading up to giving your notice to say, hey, I'm going to go out and do my own thing right now. So in, you mean when did I leave Inquira to, to actually say now it's time? Yeah, because you already had that that thought, you know, in in the back in your in your in your head. So so yeah. at one point you it just like hit you that it was just the right time to make the move. So yeah, you know, I, insiders I, of that. Sure, sure. I had planned when I went to uh, left Accenture and went to Inquira again. You know, with this knowledge that I would go do this business, you know, Mavenlink. Um, I figured it would be about a three year process, and and so it was a, right about that. And so I had already. Uh, you know, put a timeline together of when I would would uh, think about uh, starting uh, Mavenlink, and uh, and so I was in in that period, and I was working with one of my colleagues from my house. We we did a lot of great work together at Inquira, and I, I pulled down my my draft of the business plan and what it was all about with a, with a brief description, and I shared it with him, and. Um, uh, he just gave me a resounding, you know, yes, I like it, but also said, let's go do it. I'm all in. He was seeking to actually join and become a, one of my co-founders in the business and just gave me a validation that the time was now and that uh, uh, he and I had done some great business together and I felt that he would also make a good co-founder. So all of that started to come together very quickly. We recognized right away that we would also need a technical co-founder, and I had already had somebody in mind, and he says, we need to call Roger. And that was uh, one of our technical colleagues, and, and I had already eyed him to be a participant in this business. And uh, he said, let's get him on the phone. Roger also gave a resounding yes. And so within the first day of, of describing to, the, to them what I want to do, we actually had the co-team or the co-founder team established as well. And so it came together very quickly, but along the timeline that I had anticipated. Really cool. So then, so then, what ended up? I mean, did you guys like brainstorm a little bit? I mean, because you were really clear from 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 years ago. So, what was the process until you arrived to the final business model that you say this is it and this is how we're going to make money? Yeah. So once we had the the idea that it would be um, us as co-founders, and I had also done a little bit of work to say, you know, what's the ideal number of co-founders you wanted a business? Everybody was telling me not to go it alone. That. Um, uh, you'd have too few resources to tap into and you don't have the breadth of skills to do everything. Uh, and that three seemed to be the right number. So once we had that uh, uh, defined, it was, okay, when? You know, do all of us join at the same time? Um, and we, we determined that that wouldn't make sense, that there were timing issues and, you know, family concerns and those kinds of things that had to be taken care of, uh, you know, uh, separately and, and individually. And so we worked out a timeline that made sense for the for the business when uh, the skills that a particular co-founder uh, had would be able to be brought to bear in the business. And so that was staged over about a six to eight month period. And so we outlined where we needed to be, built a business plan, a timeline. But we had to do everything from the beginning, like decide what kind of a, 
uh, an entity we would set up? Would it be a C Corp, an LLC? Uh, why would we go one way or the other? What would be the equity splits of the co-founders? Where would the seed capital come from? Uh, those were all the early, you know, a month or two. And then we spent um, considerable time coming up with a, a high fidelity, um, uh, uh, call it mock-up and, 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 and visual identity of the of the business. And so that was the first several months. Um, and all that was going well. Uh, we, we seeded the company. And then, of course, uh, right when we were getting ready to go do great things, the global financial uh, crisis hit um, uh, right while we were getting getting started. And that was a, a whole other things that we had to do to, to get through that period. And I remember that uh, reading that you apparently sold before that, your stock, the stock that you had at Accenture, and that basically was what helped to bootstrap the company. Is that right? That is, and it was really you know fortuitous timing because I left Inquira first to get all the foundational work established in the business and build a business plan. Uh, part of that is, of course, was was uh, seeding the company with enough capital to get us through you know some critical milestones in the early days of the business, and so I sold some of my founders stock that I had uh, from our IPO at Accenture. And um, and it was just good timing, right? That when the financial crisis hit, all of our seed capital was in cash. And um, uh, the good news about that is, of course, that everything got really cheap in terms of contract labor, um, travel costs, those kinds of things. We were able to, to extend our, um, our seed capital quite a ways during the financial crisis. Because how long did it take until you were able to raise capital? Until we raised any what I'll call significant capital, right? And I'll call the multi-millions of capital um, from outside investors was three years. So uh, founder capital, most of it uh, from, from my own uh, capital, um, uh, was the first three years of the business. And so I funded it principally then. I also had the good fortune of a great network of people, friends and family, many of them, uh, were former or current Accenture partners uh, who came in at a friends and family round on a convertible note structure uh, during the financial crisis. They preferred to put their money with me, felt it would be I'd steward it better than, you know, say Merrill Lynch would for them. And uh, and so we were able to raise about a million and a half dollars in convertible notes, plus the seed capital that I put in, which was considerable and actually three times the amount that I had expected to put in. But that was sufficient to get us three years of, of uh, product and and, uh, and business development uh, prior and, to raising outside capital. And Ray, one, one question that I want to ask you here is um, someone that has that kind of background. I mean, you, you are someone that is very strategic. You, you think way ahead. So there's a lot of people now that, that are talking about a potential correction. I mean, we're coming out of this uh, really incredible bull run, you know, with the markets and, and so forth. So so I guess from what you've learned during this really tough um, uh, economic crisis, you know, that, that it really hit when, when you were building this, what have you learned that in the event that there was another, you know, a correction, you know, like you would be, you know, well prepared and, or at least you would have that really in mind to, to, to weather the storm? Well, I think that certainly for any entrepreneur, capital planning seems like it's a daily process, right? I've been in capital raising for this company since the day we started. Um, and thinking far enough ahead on what your needs are gonna be and where your sources of capital are gonna come from, it just always needs to be front and center. The lessons from the early days were that it, you know, it, it, 
it would take much longer for me to raise significant capital than I ever anticipated. And so we, in the in the early days of the business, we were very frugal. And it's not that we're we're not frugal now, but we're I say less so now. Um, but we we were there by by um, uh, absolute need uh, because I believed that the capital that we had raised would would need to go for a very long time. We didn't know if we would actually go into depression. And I really wanted to do this business and not back away from it. And so we just got really smart at the kinds of deals we did with vendors. We would bring them in on convertible notes and do trade deals on services. And so we just got creative and resourceful in the early days. And I think that that's continued uh, for us uh, throughout uh, throughout our, our history. And so for anybody that's in a, you know, a similar situation, it's continuous capital planning, looking far enough ahead, being very good at how to predict cash, uh, knowing that you're going to make mistakes. Um, sometimes you're going to uh, spend ahead of true product market fit. And so you're going to get a little less efficient than you had planned to be. And um, and you've got to be looking out then at uh, you know, the next uh, uh, capital raise well in advance and try and get it done before um, you know, a market correction. Got it. So I guess for, for you guys, Ray, what were, what were the early days like? The early days were um, it was, it was a mix of things, a mix of emotions and, and success, I'll say. So, you know, very early on, we, we maintained just the three co-founders and we leveraged a lot of um, uh, partners on contract, even for software development. I was a little reluctant in the early days because of the financial crisis to make employment commitments to people, um, because I think once you do that, you're, you're they're making big decisions in their lives, their families and uh, to join you. And so I preferred to do that on contract. That worked out well for us. Um, because it was also, while it was a, a, an exciting time for us to be building a business, it was also scary because of the financial crisis, and we didn't have a product that we were bringing to market yet. We were we were building it, and it took several months, probably four months, for us to get an initial product out, um, and we, we delivered a, a very broad product because we weren't sure exactly what the fit was going to be. Um, uh, that was really good for us to do that because it allowed us to narrow our focus to what the market specifically want and then direct our capital more effectively that way. And so it was a, a highly iterative, um, a lot of work, many, many uh, long days trying to get the product out there, get the understanding of the marketplace, what they needed, and, uh, and then find the right monetization mechanism as we, we grew the business. And so it was a, a combination of, of of uh, excitement and fear. And talking about fear, um, there's not such thing as a straight line in entrepreneurship. So so what have been some of, let's say, a moment for you guys with Maybelink where you really doubt if, if you were going to be able to have a, a tomorrow with the business? And and how did the breakthrough to overcome that, that moment? Yeah. You know, how, how was that like? Well, you know, um, so there's been, I'll call it, many near-death experiences <laughs> along the way, right? Um, uh, but I think the, the first one came when we when we released the product, and we had the anticipation, or at least the, the desire, that we would nail it, let's say, right? That we really thought we had a solid understanding of what the market needed, who, who the market was, and um, the breadth of capability in the product that the marketplace was demanding. I mean, I spent so many years in this business, I thought I knew it cold. And uh, when we got the product out there, um, uh, we had to redirect a bit, both narrow the focus and re redirect the entire design, how it was going to work based on the initial um, rollout 
and the clients that, that were using us, most of them on an unpaid basis, right? So they were not paying us for it, but were willing to invest the time and attention to tell us what was going to work and what wasn't. And when we when we looked at that, we said, we've got a much bigger, uh, more deep uh, product than we had anticipated that the market would require right now and be willing to pay for it. And so we um, had to ramp up our development efforts uh, at a much higher clip than I had planned capital for. And that's where I was mentioning that it required me to invest a lot more personal capital in the business than I had ever anticipated. You know, there were many, many, many months on end where I was writing, you know, hundred plus thousand dollar checks to the business and not telling my wife that I was doing that. She had uh, agreed to commit a certain amount of capital, but for three years I'm writing, you know, significant checks every month just to keep the business um, going. I had a belief that uh, we would get there in the end, but it was, you know, how long is this going to last that I'm having to continue to fund the business at this level? And so that was a, uh, you know, a scary time. And we had gone out to the uh, venture markets to raise money. Um, but uh, as you may recall, in the you know, 2009, 2010 period, it was harder to come by for an early stage company. And, um, and then in about 2011, the picture got a little bit brighter. And uh, what I had learned was that um, identifying uh, the right investors uh, who were at the right stage of your business uh, I think there's a there's a risk profile that uh, that uh, there's a, a stage of every every investor for every business identifying those early on, and um, uh, and then somebody who identifies with your market segment. Um, once we we narrowed in on that, we were able to raise uh, capital in a much easier way. But it was it was touch and go there in the very early days, and we've had that since. I can't imagine. And and did your what did your wife finally you guys say were able to get that complete? <laughs> um, you know, I'll tell you. Um, uh, when I uh, uh, raised outside capital for the for the first time, and the business was sufficiently capitalized, let's say for a you know a couple year period, um, uh, she, I came clean on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. I came clean on that one with her. And, uh, and uh, my wife's a CPA, and she ended up being uh, the VP of accounting at Mavenlink for a few years just to make sure everything was on the up and up. <laughs> <laughs> really cool, really cool. And, and, and talking about fundraising, just to follow up on that, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So to date, it's been considerable. We just closed a, a, a $48 uh, million round, um, and that brings the total to about $111 million, which would be... Uh, about on par for a company at our stage, uh, as you know, uh, or you may know, SaaS businesses are quite capital intensive to build a recurring base of customers and get the get the to product market leadership. And so today, it's been 111 million dollars coming off of a 48 million dollar raise uh, a few weeks ago. Really cool. Well, congratulations on that. And how have you seen the um, the progress uh, over time, like from a strategic perspective and from an expectations perspective, the the progression from financing cycle to financing cycle for Maybelline. Yeah, so um, I think what we've, we're in a good capital raising market first off, right? It's been that way for some time now. Uh, we had a little bit of a, a, a more challenging time, let's say in 2016, um, but it's, it's pretty good right now. Um, and uh, uh, there's a lot of capital to be invested, certainly in, in, in SaaS as well. 
Um, and so, so that part of the market's good. The expectations on, of the investors are also very high. And what's changed, um, say, from a couple of years ago or a few years ago when we last raised with Goldman Sachs, which was in 2016, um, back there, the theme was more uh, kind of grow at any cost and grow fast. I'll say north of 60% would have been a really good growth rate. Um, and to invest or let's say overinvest in sales and marketing um, in order to, to achieve that type of a growth rate. In the last couple of years, that's changed a bit uh, in our industry and efficient growth has become more the norm. And uh, and so looking at still pretty fast growth rates in the you know, 35 to 45 percent year over year growth rates, but doing so in a more capital efficient way with an eye on, you know, cash flow break even at a 40 percent growth rate would be a, a, a healthy clip. And so that that um, uh, efficient growth is now more the norm for SaaS. So then for. Now, now knowing what you know about fundraising and, and also with this um, strategic background that, that you have as well, Ray, for the people that are listening, that are thinking about raising capital, what, what piece of advice would you give them? Um, I'll anchor on a couple of points that I made earlier. Number one is make sure that you really know the investor universe and who the right investors would be for your stage of company and for your particular segment. And so in our case, we would look at, you know, late stage uh, investors who have, you know, a minimum check size of, you know, $40 million to invest that have, uh, you know, enough um, uh, additional capital in their fund to make a follow on investment um, and uh, whose philosophy on growth and efficient growth would be aligned with ours. And so. I would I would look look to uh, or encourage people to look at similar things for their own business to make sure they've got first alignment as they're going out uh, to the investor universe to narrow down the list. It'll make it a much more efficient process and a higher likelihood of certainty in closure in the time frame that people are, are seeking. And in, in your case, Ray, how did you how did you meet some of these folks? Because you have Carry Capital Partners, Goldman Sachs. I mean, how did you meet them? Yeah, so um, interesting. You know, Carrick Capital. One of the uh, co-founders and, and managing directors of Carrick is is Jim Madden. Uh, Jim and I, interestingly enough, uh, met uh, when I was at in college at Harvey Mudd College, and he was with at the time it was Arthur Anderson, you know, soon to become Accenture. He was uh, interviewing on campus, and I interviewed with him, and I ended up getting hired. <laughs> and uh, so I've known Jim for some time. Uh, we, we had a, a pretty big uh, a, a couple of decades of gap where we weren't um, uh, close. And then I knew he was investing and I reached out to him. And so my, my initial investors came from known, known people. Um, uh, subsequently, I've used investment bankers to help in the process and uh, have found them valuable when uh, looking at very large capital raises, you know, multi tens of millions of dollars of capital raises. To my point earlier, I think they're very good at narrowing down the investor universe for you. They, they work with these uh, venture capital and private equity firms frequently. Uh, they know um, their profile, uh, they know the people, and, um, and can run a process that optimizes the uh, CEO and the leadership team's time. And so that's uh, the last two rounds I've leveraged 
the services of an investment banker for introductions as well as the entire process. That's fantastic. And and how big is maybe Link today, right? So we we don't disclose revenue, but on a um, people can kind of look at their own proxy. But we have about three hundred and twenty uh, employees. Uh, we're still on a fast growth clip. We grew last year at fifty percent on a top line basis, and so we expect to do the same uh, this year. I want to say that uh, that at least uh, this last round that we just raised with uh, Carrick and Goldman Sachs together, uh, I'm hoping it's our, our our last round that will take us. Um, uh, to uh, to the uh, the level of of growth that we expect, and on a cash flow break even basis. And I think I've I've heard that the um, I read somewhere that IPO is something that the, that it will be um, uh, kind of like uh, in in the bucket list. Is that right? Well, it's yeah. I think it's a good way to put it on the bucket list. I I think it's always an option for us, and we've we've tried to run the business in a way that 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 would always be an option for us. Um, the advisors we we use, the investors that we have, um, the uh, uh, health of the business. Uh, we've always tried to make sure that it's a buttoned-up business. And, and part of that is when we took the uh, the firm Accenture public, uh, the commentary from the the marketplace uh, when we were uh, doing that, and the feedback was that it was one of the best-run businesses that the marketplace had seen. And I think Accenture's growth and stock price is still reflective of that. Uh, and that always made me feel good, right? And and I wanted to be able to create Mavenlink in a similar way, where people viewed Mavenlink as a as a high quality uh, uh, buttoned up business. And so uh, that's what's required in order to take a company public, right? Especially today, right? People expect a, a high level of maturity and predictability in these businesses, and that's what we seek to to offer. Should we have the chance to do it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 for example, the companies that are not well buttoned up, I mean the the markets are brutal, and they they have no mercy. And 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 we're seeing that with some of the different companies that are doing the the IPO. So to your point, the array of of high quality businesses, and and we've been talking about people quite a bit. And 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 before uh, when we were talking about some of the patterns that you saw on businesses that work and businesses that didn't work. So I guess for 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 your business, for Maybelline, how do you go about really bringing on board the right people and culture? Yeah, you know what's um, interesting, I think, one is I think we have a wonderful team. And I think that people have commented on the you know, high quality of the workplace. One of the real draws that people uh, tell us when they join Mavenlink and stay uh, is the quality of the people. And so we place a really high emphasis on um, the recruiting process up until, well, been about a year and a half now. I'm, I'm not able to interview everybody uh, in the interviewing process anymore. Um, but I do review all offers and the profiles and backgrounds of people. So a real high attention to the type of people with a really good specification of what makes a high quality uh, person to join the company. Um, I'm also very proud of the leadership team. And I think we have a lot of transparency on the leadership team, a lot of engagement, um, a lot of uh, you know, a high grant of authority of people feel there's some autonomy uh, amongst the, the leadership team. And so I think we've, we've, we've done a good job of that. I also think that we have a, a really big, exciting market to go after. And I think that attracts uh, people. They feel that they can build a career here and uh, and be successful. Uh, and then we also have clarity of purpose. Uh, people who join Mavenlink know exactly what we're doing, uh, the, the market that we're targeting, the value of the offering that we provide. And I think all of that helps unify the company. And for these people that are interested you know, in, in the big market, in, in what you guys are up to, 
is there like a must trait that you guys look for in people? I would say number one is people who are, are uh, uh, self-starters, right? In, in building a business, you, you, while well, we, I think, do a good job of providing clarity to people and what they're, what they're supposed to do, what I've always liked is, is if, you, if you share a common vision and uh, hire people who you know, have uh, requisite skills and, and aptitude, um, if they have a characteristic of being a self-starter, um, they identify things that need to get fixed or new parts of the product or new services or just things that we should be doing, and they're vocal about it. And if nobody's doing it, they tend to get an initiative going, and that helps build a business. And so we look for people that have some uh, demonstrated self-starter behavior. And for example, at a, at a board level and, and more on the corporate structure, from a strategic perspective, like what what were you looking for in in those board members that that you basically put in your in your team? Because after doing your your Series E, you know, obviously that comes as well with with board seats that you need to 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 give to those folks. So so how were you looking at at building the board? Yeah, well, number one, I've always felt that we needed to uh, have a high frequency of interaction with our board. Um, while we do have quarterly board meetings, we also have a high frequency of, of uh, interaction on a uh, every two-week basis uh, to keep them uh, moving along with the business and also seek their advice. Uh, and so I think that that's one just an operating uh, characteristic of the business. And so when I look at then form, forming uh, the board, well, number one, when we take institutional capital, that is part of the consideration in the early days of who we select as an investor is who they would be putting on our board. Um, and we would be seeking people who, one, have operational experience, um, they know what it takes to build a business, uh, and then the range of their experience is important. And so we would have, like today, board members who, for example, Klaus uh, Bessier, who is the former CEO of SAP Americas, who would have enterprise software experience and, and, and taking a company through high growth. Um, when it comes to product, we would have somebody like Richard Campione, who's been a chief product officer for companies, um, mostly in the large enterprise space. We would have other people who have uh, been entrepreneurs themselves, um, who've walked in my shoes and, and can be good coaches and advisors uh, to me. And then others who would be operationally focused on making sure that uh, this business has a, you know, is, is instrumented in a way that we know what's going on, that we can report out on, and we can make uh, uh, adjustments um, as necessary along the way. So, you know, breadth, depth, experience, and also good advisors and coaches. So then what, what does a successful and an effective board look like, right? Um, number one, I think there's a, a, a healthy balance of, um, you know, the, your, your institutional investor board members and um, uh, uh, an independent board members, right? So we would be balanced towards, you know, more, including the CEO who would be independent board members versus institutional investors. I think that's just a healthy dynamic and, and all the shareholder interests are being effectively looked after. So that's for first and foremost. Uh, I think high engagement is really important. Often I see uh, board members that, um, uh, uh, lack the engagement required to be effective board members, meaning that they've got to be there for every call, every meeting, be available uh, on an ad hoc basis sometimes, uh, stay informed, come prepared, come to every single meeting, um, 
and uh, and participate. So that's just sometimes it, you, you would say it goes without saying, but I often see that that's not the case. Um, and then um, uh, and then they're helping guide and coach and even set the agenda for board meetings so that they're effective uh, in their in their execution. So I would say those are some of the some of the fundamentals. And and talking about boards, it's it kind of like reminds me about problem solving and being a strategic about problems and and being a founder, you know, just like yourself, Ray, is a, it's all about problem solving and and putting out fires. So so one thing that you have is this this incredible background um, in, in in from consulting and that you acquired at the, at Accenture. So so now when you have a really difficult very complex problem, like massive problem that can determine the potential future success of Maybelline. How do you go about it? Yeah, I think one of the things I learned uh, very early on is there's a lot of smart people out there that can help you. And so um, in nearly every um, problem situation, uh, I think it's important to go identify who has some expertise that can help you solve it. as early as you can, put the fish on the table, right? So you're not hiding it and uh, and get it out there for people to one, try and understand and then participate in solving it. So it's usually a, a, a group um, uh, solution out there and that most problems do have a solution to them. And if you address it early, get uh, the, the right people around the table to help you resolve it, I think uh, it's a higher likelihood that you'll have success in, in getting it resolved. So then, so then, talking about results. So in a in a world where the vision of Maybelline is fully realized, what does that look like? Boy, um, we've got a broad vision and mission for this company. And while today we provide this really excellent business management software for the professional and creative services industry, and it does just a bang up job of helping them become higher performers, the other dimension. Uh, of our aspiration is to change the nature of uh, uh, the service provider industry itself, where um, all of these thousands of companies today who use Mavenlink and may lack the specific expertise to grow their company, um, their demand may be a little bit uh, spiky, and uh, they don't always have the necessary resources to, um, to deploy to clients this idea of having a networked services model where um, all of these providers can tap into other providers that are already using Mavenlink in real time and identify availability of talent in a network uh, so they don't have to rely on hiring or acquiring companies in order to grow uh, would be the vision that we would have. So all of these service companies can act as if they had unlimited capacity to grow their businesses. And so it goes beyond just a SaaS product into creating a new model for services delivery. Really cool. And, and, and also for the listeners that we have, and, and many of them, I'm sure that they're doing SaaS. Where do you think uh, SaaS is going as a whole? I still think it's, well, it's not early days. It certainly is still um, in the you know, still rapid growth stage of a technology shift from on-premise software to uh, software as a service. Uh, and I think it's still evidence. It's just shocking to me the growth rates of these companies that are still quite large, that are public, and still growing at very, very fast. You know, thirty plus, forty plus percent year-over-year growth clips at you know billion-dollar businesses, right? 
And so I think it's just evidence that it's still early on in this technology shift. I also think it's it's an enduring uh, technology shift. You know, we've gone from from mainframe to mid-range to you know PCs to you know client server now to web-based software as a service. And I, I've yet to see what the next model will be. It hasn't emerged yet. And so I think that SaaS as a as a delivery model uh, still has quite a long way to go. That's amazing. So what? What the, you know, there's, there's one thing that I always ask a guest that come on the show and, and I like to ask you the same race. So, so knowing what you know now, I mean, it's a tremendous run that you've had not only in corporate, but then also now with Maybelline. So, so I guess knowing what you know now, if you had the opportunity to go back and, and, and talk to your younger self and give yourself one piece of business advice, what would that be and why? Gosh, um, I, I like the question. And so let me let me think for a second. If I look back at the early days, um, I would have um, been much more aggressive, frankly, in raising uh, capital right at the outset of the business. I would have made sure that we would have had several more million dollars in the very early days of the business, and I would have been a bit more bold in um, in what I would have done with the product. I, I was more experimental. Uh, in the early days, and um, uh, uh, about three years to really say that we quote found it right, and and um, and where we ended up was exactly where I thought we would be. But had I been a little bit more bold and, and sure of myself, I think the financial crisis maybe shook me a little bit. Um, yeah. That uh, I would have powered through that a little bit faster, and I think the business would have been better served by by moving more quickly. So what does a uh, being bold with the with the product look like? Yeah, I would have um, I, I, we had a very clear vision right from the get go. And though we we um, I think got spooked a little bit in the early days because we put it out there and the marketplace told us to, to, to narrow it down, which we did. And that was the right the right call. Once we made that decision, I would have moved faster then. Right. We would have we would have uh, gotten more feedback from the marketplace. Um, we would have um, begun hiring uh, software engineers much faster. Uh, what we did was use contractors, which were more expensive, but I did that more you know, in, in experimentation mode. Um, and when it was all said and done, we ended up, as I said, being exactly where we, we knew we would be from the product and could have been there faster, could have taken market leadership faster. Um, and I think probably been... Uh, you know, two years ahead of where we are, where we are now. I would have been more so, confident, I'll say. I, I was just, I, I lacked some of the confidence. I think we got spooked by the, the, the I'll say, the, the, the product narrowing um, and, uh, and, and the financial crisis. But it's just like what they say, Ray, you don't know what you don't know, right? Exactly. Because that's, that's, why, that's why hindsight that gives you that, that, that courage, right? Oh, 100%. So, so, Ray, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I think the best way uh, is uh, you know come to our website, our contact page. Please re you know, reach out if you've got some interest, either you know about the company or, or uh, uh, personally. If if there was something that uh, intrigued you about the the podcast, you want to know more about, uh, uh, just through the contact page, and that message will, will get to me. Um, and then if you're interested in uh, you know the, the product, we have live chat, and and people can serve you that way. Um, and then we'll get back to you at a, at a, at a, at a convenient time. Amazing. Well, Ray, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. 
Alejandro, my pleasure. And thanks for allowing me to share our story. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.